Hi there, esteemed viewer. This is Rob Camp, and this is Middle Grade Ninja TV. I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available on audiobook, paperback, and the electronic book is free to download whenever you're viewing this. I run the website middlegradeninja.com, where I interview hundreds of authors, including today's guest, Laura Martin, as well as literary agents and editors and other publishing professionals. Uh, welcome, Laura Martin. It's nice to see you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Why don't you uh, tell our viewers a little bit about yourself? Well, I am the author of now three middle grade novels. Um, I always say I am a mom by day and a writer by night. Um, I have three kiddos. Um, I used to be a teacher. I taught for six years and then kind of hung up my teacher shoes to do the stay-at-home mom slash author gig, which has been really Kind of living the dream in the best of both worlds. Um, so I have three books. I have the Edge of Extinction series, which is two books, um, Edge of Extinction, The Art Plan, and then Codenamed Flood, which are also behind me. Um, and then my new novel just came out last week, and it does not have dinosaurs in it, but it's so good, and it's called Flow. I love that book, too. It's a great <laughs> book. So how, uh, how did you get started as a writer? I feel like it's a little cliche because I was the uh, English teacher who was writing a book, and I feel like that's a very cliche thing. Every English teacher is also writing a book on the side. Um, but I've always loved writing, and I should have started paying attention earlier that writing was like my thing. Um, because when I went to Butler University here in Indianapolis, I was an education major, and then I tacked on a creative writing major because I'm cheap and you can get two majors for the price of one. Um, and I also <laughs> always loved creative writing, so I was like, oh, I'll do this just for fun. Um, and I think it's a good life lesson that if you're doing things just for fun, that you should pay attention to that. And if you can make your passion into a paycheck, it's kind of the way to go. Um, so I kind of put a deadline on myself. I was teaching at the time, and I said, you know what? Um, I'd really like to get a book published before I'm 30. Like, I put a deadline on the dream. Like, let's get it done. Um, and it's funny. When you start kind of putting deadlines on your dreams, you start to have to take the steps to make that happen. So it's like, okay, well, step one, i got to write a book, and I've got to figure out what to do once I have this book, and how do I edit it? And um, I had to actually write one complete book that was absolute junk because I didn't know what I was doing, and it was a middle-grade novel that was 250,000 words that I then had to try to cut down to 70,000 words, and it didn't go well. Um, so Edge of Extinction was actually my second book that I wrote um, because that's actually one of the best pieces of writing advice I've ever gotten is that while you're getting all these rejections and I had plenty um, That you get something new going that's exciting that you think is really good So that as you're getting these rejections you go. Oh, no, wait, wait, I have something better and edge of extinction was my better So um, it happened that I went on maternity leave with my first child my daughter and about a week into my maternity leave when I had stopped checking my email account that had all my agent emails going is when my dream agent emailed me and said, you know, I wonder why you're not getting back to me. And I was like in the hospital. Um, and it all just kind of happened at once. And you have the dream agent, don't you? What, what's uh, your agent? Um, my agent is Jody Reamer. Um, she was the agent that I kind of applied to. You know how you like apply to Harvard, even though you don't think you have the grades. Like, why not? I'll just apply. Um, I kind of had that approach of like, why not? Just see if she would be interested. And um, I actually thought, that the uh, attempt was kind of dead in the water because she had my book for almost a year um, by the time I got the call. And I've been talking back and forth with one of her assistants and I'd done a couple edits with her assistant. She'd never even seen it. Um, so then I got the actual email from her. Um, it was like the skies parted. You know, you had that moment, you know, angel saying. And so um, I got really lucky. And I am, I'm very aware of how blessed I am to have her as like my super agent. 
That's outstanding. And Mr. Emmer, if you're uh, watching this, you are welcome at Middle Grade Ninja anytime. I've got seven <laughs> questions for you. I'd love to have you come by. Uh, so Laura, other than myself, because you and I are critique partners, and I know that I'm a tremendous influence on your writing, uh, but other than me, uh, what uh, writers would you say have had the most influence on your work? Well, I do have to say that you have been an influence on my work. I've been reading Middle Grade Ninja long before I got published. It was actually like the number one source that I used um, when I was trying to figure out agents and trying to figure out how this publishing world worked because I feel like a lot of getting published is sometimes knowing what not to do um, and knowing like how to not make a fool of yourself. And so your blog was great about educating us about how to go about that with your interviews and all that. And then I've had the, the pleasure of getting sneak peek at Vanneker Bones book too. And so that's been really fun um, to see. But as as far as like big authors, I would say, um, the very first books that ever made me kind of fall in love with reading, I would say, is Chronicles of Narnia. So those are definitely up there. Um, I love fantasy. I love science fiction. It's always kind of been what I gravitated towards as a reader. So that's kind of what I gravitated towards it as a writer. Um, of course, Harry Potter is up there. I've read that series so many times and no one will ever come close to her. And I think sometimes as a writer, you can read something as amazing as Harry Potter or something amazing as like John Green's work and get a little down because you're like, I will never write this well. But you have to just remember that um, we all have our own voice and our, everyone's voice is different. And there's so many readers out there who want to hear all the different voices. I actually found a problem with the first Harry Potter. The other six are perfect, but that first one I found an issue with. So I'm like, aha, I've got you, Rowling. <laughs> you're, you're human after all. Yeah, <laughs> and there are uh, multiple references to Harry Potter through uh, Float. Mm -hmm. There are. Um, I actually, there's a um, time traveling issue in the book Float. And my original reference for the time traveling issue is he referenced Back to the Future. And my publisher was like, that might be too old. Kids might not know what Back to the Future is. And so I was like thinking about who else I know. The DeLorean. Arrow through my heart. Oh, no. So I know. I made me feel old. And so I was like, okay. So I wanted to bring in um, a reference for a time travel that kids would be familiar with. And I feel like most kids are familiar with Harry Potter in some way. They should be. In a perfect world, they all would be. Exactly. <laughs> and you also have uh, three lovely children. Um, and, and a husband and a whole life outside of writing. So how do you manage to find time for your writing and all of your book promotion and everything else you have to do to keep the thing running while not sacrificing time from your family? I don't feel like I do it well some days and other days I feel like I've got a handle on it. Um, I always say I write when the kids are sleeping. Um, I have a hard time because when I write, I like have to like kind of throw myself into that world that I'm creating and writing. And you can't do that and watch three little people at the same time, at least not well. Um, so I do most of my writing after the kiddos go to sleep. Um, it used to be when I just had one baby, you know, when she napped, that was my like dedicated writing time. I'd sit down and get it done. Um, now I have enough kids that know there's no like napping time where everybody's sleeping, which is really unfortunate. Um, so it's when they go to bed and then I just kind of do my best. I have to say, you know, do my best every day and then leave it on the table, I guess. You know, put it out there and say, you know, I don't want to sacrifice who I am as a mom. Um, and I also don't want to sacrifice you as a writer. And so just kind of doing my best and free time is something I don't have anymore, you know, and it's great because I love what I do. So when the kids go to bed and then I spend the next few hours working, it doesn't feel like work because for so long writing was something that I did for fun. Um, that sometimes I actually have to remind myself that like, this is what I do for a living now. Cause in my head I'll be like, okay, you can sit down and write when you have the laundry done and you've cleaned up the kitchen and you've done dinner prep for tomorrow. And I have to remind myself that like, that has to kind of get moved to the front of the line now, where before it was always that, that thing I did for fun. So I'm blessed that I like what I do because 
there's not much time to do much else. <laughs> I am a great admirer. Two, you're, you're at least two hours every night, and that's during the, those prime evening hours when it's it's audio book time, it's uh, video game time, it's uh, book time. How um, how do you keep your focus uh, that late and 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 stay through it every night, or do you? Um, there's definitely nights where I fall off the wagon a little bit just because chasing three kids all day is exhausting. Um, so I've actually started like saving my cup of coffee till like 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> but it kicks in, you know, right around the time that we're done, you know, going to bed and I can get some stuff done. Um, I usually, the, the thing about the publishing world is it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, so I'll have things that I have to get done and a deadline is always really good for me. Like I like to know, oh, I have two weeks to do this and then I can really buckle down and get it done. Whereas if I have like two months, I'm more likely to be like, eh, I'll do it later, it'll be fine. Um, so I work really well with deadlines. I always have a running to-do list. Um, and I've been doing this since way before I got published. I always have a to-do list and it's like house to-do list and book to-do list. And then I make it my goal to get everything checked off the list by the end of the week. So I kind of have to strategize and say, okay, if I need to get these 10 things done, then I gotta do you know, two every night and kind of make a plan that way. And grandma, I call grandma, my mom a lot and say, help, can you watch the kids? I'm behind. And so that's how I actually quite a few of the books when I am in crunch time and I have to get a whole book edited or something or turned around in a week or two. Um, I'll cry uncle and my mom will swoop in and watch the kids for a few hours during the day. Oh, wow. That's a secret weapon right there. It is. It is. Um, one of the pieces of advice I got when I had went from one, child to two. Someone said, just give yourself a lot of grace. It's okay. Give yourself grace. And then I found a babysitter named Grace. So I literally gave myself grace once a week. She'd come, Grace would come for three hours and watch the kids and I'd lock myself in the office and pretend I wasn't here and get some stuff done. So it's all about kind of managing time the best you can. Uh, if my mom is watching this. I know you live about an hour away, but I would also appreciate if you wanted to come by and watch your dance. My mom lives in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you hear that, Mom. The pressure is on. You're, you've got yeah, an hour. Yeah, she comes back home to Indiana. Not that it's not that long. And you, uh, you used to be a seventh grade English teacher, uh, and I know you've talked about you still kind of are in that headspace sometimes. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that that prepared you to write middle grade novels, or did it? It definitely did. Um, when I started writing, I had these aspirations of writing YA books, you know, with the romances and all this stuff. And um, the more I wrote, the more I realized, like, my people are middle school people. Um, I loved teaching seventh grade, and it's funny, because anytime you tell anybody that you taught middle school, they all go, oh. Because <laughs> middle school is kind of a rough age. They're stuck in the middle of being between kids and adults. You know, it's you're going through a lot of changes, and friends are hard, and, you know, friends are mean a lot of the time. And. Um, I think being on the road to achieving this dream is exactly where I needed to be for those years because not only was I around my future readers, um, but as an English teacher, I was constantly reading middle grade books, trying to find the next hot book that would get my non-readers to become readers. Um, and so it really helped me kind of see what kids liked, what, you know, even the most reluctant reader would not put down, um, and then maybe turn around and write that. Because a lot of times what I discovered is that my seventh graders, there were 12, and as you know, middle grade is eight to 12 year old, and then young adult starts at 12 and goes to 18. So my kids were like stuck in the middle. Um, and a lot of them were ready for the action of the young adult book, but they weren't ready for necessarily some of the like grit and content that goes along with the young adult book. Um, so when I sat down to write mine, I said, I want all the adventure and all the action of the young adult book, but I don't want to have anything that will get me a parent email. <laughs> if that makes sense. As a teacher, you always want to avoid the parent emails. Pretty much your uh, rule in life. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
And I wanted to ask you, I know that I had read that um, uh, you had received over 150 different rejections before you found Miss Jody Reamer, who again is welcome on my blog anytime. Um, how did you persevere? How did you keep going through 150 rejections to get where you are now? One thing I already mentioned is I had something good coming down the pipeline. I was writing Edge of Extinction. Uh, at the time, it wasn't called Edge of Extinction, but I was working on that. Um, the other thing is that I kind of told myself that I wasn't going to stop working on this just because it took a while. Like I always say, just because a dream takes 10 years to achieve, like 10 years is going to go by anyway, right? So isn't it better to be on the path to a dream than to go after 10 years and go, oh, man, I should have done that? Um, so I just, and it was one of the things I always taught my students is I always kind of taught dream chasing on the side. Like every teacher has it in the agenda. I don't know if you know this or not. Like we teach our content and then we also teach like the other thing that's important to us. You know, I had a science teacher who was very into like giant squids. So all of his squids knew about those by the time the, you know, the year was over. Mine was about, you know, finding your purpose in life early and starting to chase your dreams early and taking the steps today so you are where you want to be tomorrow. Um, and so it was a really a way for me to show that to my kids, to live that life. And I would show them the rejection letters and I would show them, you know, I'd always say at the very first day, like, what's your dream? They'd like write it on a cloud and we'd put them up on the front of the room so that literally their dreams were in front of them all year long. Um, and I would always say that, you know, my dream is getting a book published, guys, and I'm at this point in the journey and I'm not going to stop. And um, so they were a big encouragement, but also I just knew that even if it took me 20, 30 years to get this done, then it would be an enjoyable 20, 30 years because I like doing it and it'd be an awesome end result. So now that you uh, have achieved some dreams, I know you, you've always got new goals oh, yeah. and you're always working toward uh, new books. Uh -huh. um, but now that you've had some success, what is it that you love most about being a middle grade author? What have you found most satisfying? I love author visits and going into schools is actually something, it's funny because as a teacher, that was in my wheelhouse, right? I'm used to talking to large groups of kids. I was a very good teacher. I can pump up an audience and keep their attention. Um, so it's really fun to go in and do author visits because it's almost like the author, or, you know, the teacher equivalent of being a grandparent. You know how grandparents get to come in and they rile everybody up and then they peace out at bedtime. That's kind of like what an author visit is. It's like being a teacher, you get to come in, get everyone excited about reading and writing, and then you don't have to read anybody's essays and you get to go home. Um, and it's really been fun. I love that. I love getting to talk to kids about being an author. Um, I still remember the first time I met a like live in the flesh author. I won the Young Authors Award in like fifth grade, and I got to go to that event. And I remember sitting there going like, "Wow, you can like actually do this. Like this is something that people do." Um, and I think it's important that kids get to see real live authors and see people doing it because otherwise it just seems like this far off thing. They think all authors are, you know, old and dead. So um, it's one of my favorite things about being an author is getting to talk to kids um, and talk about, you know, writing and dream chasing and all that. So if you were to give some of our uh, viewers who are no doubt authors or aspiring authors some tips on how to plan a successful school visit, what makes a successful school visit, uh, what would you tell them? It's funny, I actually wrote a guest post for your blog about how to present to middle schoolers because they are a different bunch, let me tell you. Um, I but know I, it was a leading question. Yes. And that post is available at middlegradeninja.com. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> um, so one of the best things to do is get in contact with your media specialists. Um, they're the ones who usually have the funds for the visit, who organize the visit. Um, if you get a great media specialist who's on your side and is going to go the extra mile to make your visit you know, go well, that's the very first step. Um, so pre-orders um, as far as getting your book sold to the kids that day. So when I get there, they already have a book purchase. I get to sign it. They get to walk away with something tangible from the visit is great. 
um, any kind of preparation they can do before you get there so you're not coming in cold um, and they don't know who you are or what you wrote. So the best visits by far are the visits where the media specialist has like given a copy of the book to the teachers that are coming. The teachers read a chapter or two. The kids come in like pumped to meet you. They have all the questions. Um, I just had an awesome visit last week and they had listened to both books before I even got there. So they had a billion questions for me. They were really into it. They loved hearing the backstory um, of how the books were created. Um, and, you know, I, I've done author visits for free, um, and the, some of them have gone really well, but I think you always want to have some kind of stake in it because the few visits that I've done for free, a lot of times you walk in and they're not prepared. No one knows who you are. You know, there's like nothing invested in it to make it a good visit for them. Um, so even if it's just something small like, $10, you know, like, so then they actually put the time into making your visit go well. Um, I always like to have visual aids, especially for kids. You want to have something for them to look at besides you. Um, I use a PowerPoint, and it's not like I'm going through and, like, clicking through a PowerPoint. It's usually, like, a big picture of a dinosaur when I'm talking about that dinosaur. Um, I have little model dinosaurs that I use um, for float I bring this guy with. Okay. Uh, this just in the book. <laughs> so you always want to bring some kind of visual aids, some props. Um, especially the younger your group is, the less their attention span will stay with you if you don't have something visual from the seat. Just reminded me I needed to bring up my Edge of Extinction, official Edge of Extinction T-Rex. <laughs> pretty amazing. And I give those away at author visits. I have some dinosaur trivia I do at the end of the presentation, and the kids can win one. Um, and I always think they're easy trivia questions, but a lot of kids get stumped, so it's always fun. So would you say that going out in person has been your most successful marketing technique or just author to author to all the authors listing? What would you say, have, have, what have you had the most success with in book marketing? Definitely person to person is great. Um, middle grade is a very tricky genre, you know, area to market because our readers are not on social media. I feel like young adult books are all over social media. All the book bloggers are all over it. Um, you're one of the very few blogs out there that really focuses on middle grade. I feel like middle grade often gets lost in the shuffle. So I haven't had a ton of success from the social media angle. And I'm also not very good at social media because as a teacher, um, we didn't do social media. We like had it all on privacy settings. Um, there was teachers that got fired at my school for social media, faux pas. So I was very reluctant with social media. Um, the best thing that I've done is reaching out to podcasts and reaching out to blogs like yours. Um, my favorite um, podcast is The Read Aloud Revival. Um, she is an awesome podcast all about the importance of reading aloud to your family and kind of creating a community um, around books. And I thought it was the longest of long shots, but apparently I do well with long shots like I did with my agent. So I wrote her a letter, and it was kind of a funny, self-deprecating letter about, like, hi, I'm nobody. Would you like to read my book kind of thing? Um, and I sent it to her, and she handed the book to her kiddos, and both of her kids loved it and said, Mom, you got to read this book. And she said, a dinosaur book? And they said, yeah, you're really going to like it. Um, and so I ended up getting to be on her podcast, which is awesome because it reaches, you know, tons and tons of listeners. That's outstanding. Well, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about your books. Will you tell us a little bit about the Edge of Extinction series and what uh, new readers who, for some reason, have foolishly skipped it thus far can look forward to when they read it right after this? Of course. Um, so there's two books in the series. Um, the first one is The Ark Plan, and the second one is Codename Flood. And the reason there's two books is that when I originally wrote the book, it was just one book. And when I sold it to HarperCollins, they said, we like the book, but we'd like you to split it into two. So book one has a major cliffhanger ending because it's literally like halfway through my first book. And then 
book two continues. So basically, the Edge of Extinction series is the idea that, as a human race, we figured out how to bring dinosaurs out of extinction, and it went very, very badly. Because when I got the idea, I said, you know what, if we ever bring our predators out of extinction, like, our place in the food chain drops, like, that's not going to go well. So the book actually starts about 150 years after dinosaurs have kind of taken over, and they've taken over Indiana. I set the book here in Indiana, where I'm from. Um, and the main character, Sky, has been living underground with the rest of the human race. And to solve the mystery of what happened to her dad, she has to go above ground. Well, the problem is nobody survives above ground anymore. And it's kind of the adventure that happens from there. Um, and they're trying to kind of get this quest and get up to Lake Michigan. Um, and that's why book two literally takes place in Lake Michigan. Um, and I grew up near Chicago, so I grew up looking out at Lake Michigan at this huge body of water. I'm like, there's got to be something cool, you know, that lives in there. So I grew up and I became a writer and I put some sea monsters in there. Um, so that's the Edge of Extinction series. It's huge really improvement fun. over the actual Lake Michigan. I've been there, and it's huge, very disappointing. You look for dinosaurs. There aren't any. You've <laughs> rocked the, right at that wrong. <laughs> I have. So it's been fun for the last few years to kind of talk dinosaurs and be – I always tell kids, you know, they ask, were you, like, weirdly into dinosaurs before you wrote these books? And I always say, no, but I am now. Like, I'm definitely the weird dinosaur lady now. So it's been interesting and also kind of scary to depart from dinosaurs and – you know, move into float, which doesn't have dinosaurs in it. I feel like I let some readers down by not putting dinosaurs in here. Um, but this book came from a lot of the stories my dad told to me as a kid growing up. Um, my dad had one of those childhoods that he probably shouldn't have survived. Like he did crazy things like light a lake on fire and try to lasso a pig, which didn't go well. Um, so I always knew I wanted to do something with these stories of my dad. And I have so many like starts of books on my computer that didn't go anywhere. Um, because I couldn't make the stories work. I didn't know who to tell the story from. And then at the time, I was, I want to say I was like a second-year teacher, um, and I was tutoring a student because second-year teachers don't make a whole lot of money. Um, and I gave the student a prompt, and I, the prompt was, what if you had a superpower and it didn't work? And so while they were doing it, I started doing the prompt too, and I came up with this character named Emerson who could float, but he couldn't control it. No, he's also afraid of heights, so he has to wear this vest. And I walked out of that tutoring session with this piece of paper, and I was like, I like this. You know, I like this character, but what can I do with them? And so I literally just handed this kid, Emerson, my dad's entire childhood, and he just happens to float. So it's kind of the, the combining of those two ideas. So you started off with, without a real plot in mind. It was just, I had this character. What is the adventure for this character? And then it yeah, all kind of came from there. these characters, and I said, well, give him my dad's stories. He can lasso a pig, and he can light a lake on fire, and he can try to take a canoe across the lake, and it has a hole in it, and it's not going to you know, make it all the way across. So um, it was the fastest novel by far that I've written because I had all these kind of benchmark events. Um, and then one thing that I kind of wove throughout the story was this mystery. Um, Emerson ends up at a camp called Camp Outlier with a bunch of other kids who have the same kind of issues as he has. So he can float and he can't control it. Um, there's another kid at camp who's inconsistently invisible and he can't control when he kind of blinks out of sight. There's another child who self-combusts. Um, my favorite is the kid who has x-ray vision impairment, so he has his skunk service animal. So for the person in his life, he's not on the outside. You know, he's a misfit, but when you're a misfit among misfits, nobody's a misfit anymore. Um, so for the first time, he starts making friends and having all these kind of adventures at camp. So even though they have all these kind of crazy problems, at the heart of it, it's very much a traditional camp setting that they're in at, you know, doing a lot of the same camp things. So um, they're trying to also save another camper who has a time-traveling um, impairment as well. So that kind of got woven throughout the story. I wanted to ask you, your um, heroes... Uh, 
I don't know if that's the right word. The Red Maple Boys uh, have powers that in another story or a comic book we've seen portrayed as heroic, as giving them this huge advantage. And for these kids, uh, it seems like they are, um, the, the powers are more of a disadvantage. Like, for example, Emerson, uh, he can fly, kind of, but he can't control it. He's forever having to be tied down, weighted down to keep him from just floating out of Earth's atmosphere. Uh, mm -hmm. You mentioned Murphy, the time traveler, um, who time travels, but not like Hermione uh, with her. Oh, gosh, I'm going to show my uh, show my ignorance of Harry Potter. What is it? Time Turner. Oh, time well, Turner. there you one. go. Uh, she. Uh, <laughs> She has the ability to control time, but not Murphy. He he just kind of gets sucked through. He's become unstuck in time, like uh, the main character in Slaughterhouse Five. Mm -hmm. What is it that about these characters, or what is it that made you want to portray these powers, uh, not necessarily in a negative light, but with more of a burden for the children rather than an advantage, and rather than go in the traditional route where they go on to become the X Men and take on a villain? Right. Well, originally the, the working title I had for this book wasn't float. It was super zeros. Um, nice. And so um, I changed it because I didn't want them to be seen as heroes. Like I didn't want anyone to think it was going to be the kind of book, like you said, where everybody like, oh, they just have to figure out and train a little bit. Now they can come together and be these awesome superheroes and save the day. Um, these are kids with problems and major problems, you know, be floating, you know, Emerson is always terrified that he's going to die because of his um, floating. Like if he doesn't have his vest on, he's just going to float up to the moon, basically. Um, and all these kids have different levels assigned to them based off of their risk of how dangerous they are to either themselves or somebody else. Um, and what I wanted this book to kind of be about is how do you play the hand that you're dealt and that sometimes you're given a hand because you have the grit to play it. Um, and Emerson, that the whole thing you know, kind of goes into the book, kind of poor me, aren't I, you know, isn't it awful to be me? And he sees all these other kids with other issues. And for the first time, he goes, maybe it's not so bad. You know, maybe I am exactly who I'm supposed to be. Um, and there isn't ever a moment in the book where they all come together and save the day like superheroes because they're not. And actually, um, Gary, who's a character in the book, he's kind of surly and grumpy and um, he sticks to things. But he has a speech at the end where he says, like, we're never going to come together and be awesome, guys. Like, we're a problem. Um, and Hank says, like, don't take up motivational speaking. It's not your strong suit. <laughs> um, but I wanted it to be a book about overcoming, you know, differences and overcoming problems and kind of facing them head on. And I didn't want them to have that moment where they all have that superpower moment and, oh, it's fine, you know, because I feel like that's been done. I wanted to do something new. Did you always know, um, speaking of doing something new, something that I'm sure has to have been done in all the time travel stories, but I don't recall ever seeing it, certainly not in the middle grade story. Um, Murphy, slight spoiler, uh, knows that he's not going to survive the summer. He's hopped forward to times where he's not there and he's seen his parents weeping and upset. He knows that somewhere this 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 year, this summer that the book takes place, something bad is going to happen to him. Did you always know that that was going to be the case for Murphy, or did that come up while you were writing and plotting and needed conflict? Where'd that come that from? It came up while I was writing. At the time, I was just writing it. It was this fun story about this kid who floats, and I was handing them all my dad's stories. Um, and then this problem with Murphy came up. And in the original draft, it didn't come up till like, over halfway through the book. Um, so one of the main editing things I had to do is I had to take his time traveling problem, which is kind of the vehicle that drives the whole plot, 
and I had to pull it further towards the for, you know towards the beginning. And I don't necessarily reveal it at the beginning, um, but there's a lot of hints that there's something going on with Murphy. That Emerson notices Murphy from the very beginning. He sees Murphy's parents crying, and he knows something's up. So I had to drop those little like breadcrumbs at the beginning, so the reader would want to know what's going on with this kid, um, and then reveal it a little later. So I did pull it forward, but it is something that just kind of revealed itself. Um, I'm not someone who sits down and writes a huge detailed outline of their book. I wish I was. Um, I always call myself, you know, a pantser. We fly by the seat of our pants. Um, I just start with an idea, and then I just go, and I see where it takes me. And if I hit a dead end, like, for example, when I was writing Codename Flood, um, I hit a dead end, and I sat down, and I said, I think the book's done. And I was like, the last 10,000 you know, 10, words are kind of boring. They're kind of wandering around underground, and nothing's happening. And um, so I literally took that 10,000 words and cut it and stuck it in another document so I could go back to it later if I changed my mind. And I went back to where the story was exciting, and I kind of took it up another path. So, um, you know those books that used to be like choose your own adventure, where you get to the page and be like, if you want to go in the cave, go to page ten. If you want to go, you know, jump over the fire, go to page thirty. It was kind of like that style of writing, where I cut it off and go a different direction and see what happened. So, on my computer, I have multiple documents that I call, you know, that are called float cuts. I have all these cut scenes from float where I would pull things out when they stopped working. Some of them made it back in, um, but a lot of them didn't. So with the, um, uh, I know you told me to do that with my work, and I said, oh, Laura, if only I could be as tough as you, 10,000 words gone, oh. I know, it's um, heartbreaking. To give people hope who are, who are gonna follow the, the Laura Martin method of, of, of being a ninja with your writing and, and killing your mm -hmm. darlings and putting that stuff yep, in a file and save it for later. Have you had stuff that was, was in the file, say, forever, that then you were able to use elsewhere or has been useful to you for some of the project? Actually, yeah. And my newest project, which you've had the, the joy of helping me edit, um, Hoax for Hire is the title. Um, oh, good. We can't talk about it. I didn't know if it was top secret. I love Hoax for Hire. Top secret. I think it's actually on HarperCollins website with no cover yet. So it's called Hoax for Hire. Um, but there was a whole scene involving a Bigfoot hoax. Bigfoot hoax um, that I cut after our critique session. It was about 25 pages of this hoax and this flashback, and I cut the whole thing, and I put it in a separate file. And so then when my editor came back with the first round of edits for Hoax for Hire, she had all these things she wanted me to add in as far as building the background with the family and all these other things, and I was like, I have a scene that does that. Would you like to see it? So I literally just sent her this cut scene. I said, should I work this back in somewhere? And she said, yeah, work it back in somewhere. So the whole scene got to come back. So sometimes, and that's actually the first time that's happened. Um, most of the time when a scene gets cut, it stays cut, except for maybe going back and grabbing a few paragraphs. Um, but I think there's something about saving it and not just like deleting it completely that makes it feel better. Because you're like, oh, I can come back to it later if I want to. You know, it's not like you're deleting it and it's gone forever. Um, plus, you know, there's always the fun bonus content you can do. Um, for your book. So there's a whole scene in Float that I cut um, that involved the boy skinny dipping that might make it on to my website as like a fun bonus chapter if someone feels like reading it. Um, you know, I remember when I read the Twilight book, I loved going in and seeing all the extra chapters she posted on her website. I think that's fun. So a lot of times those still resurface or they resurface in other books. You can bring it back for uh, what Float, the unrated edition? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely still a little great. Um, I did end up cutting it though because I was like, I don't know, because the boys are gonna go. You know, anyways, it's a it's an interesting scene. <laughs> uh, too bad it's gone, but hopefully we'll be able to put it up as a special feature. It'll come in handy for something. Yeah, it might. It was a fun scene to write. Let's put it that way. 
And I wanted to, oh, what did I want to ask you? I've got a bunch of notes. Oh, I wanted to ask you about the word, but you, I didn't do an exact count, but at least 30, 40 times the word but appears here in float. What is it about that word that you like, or is this the first time anyone's ever brought it to your attention? Uh, first time anyone's brought it to my attention. I know you, I use the word scramble too much. Um, but Hank is one of the main characters in Float, and he's the one who's inconsistently invisible. But he's only invisible if he doesn't have clothes on. So basically, like, when he disappears, his clothes don't. So anytime Hank's going to be sneaky or try to do something with his invisibility, he's got to be naked to do it. So you see a lot of Hank's butt <laughs> in the book. Um, and I don't know, there's just something funny about butts. I'm sorry, Float is a pretty funny book. I think my husband told me, he's like, you're a lot funnier when you write than in person, which is kind of like a weird compliment but not kind of thing. Um, and I don't know, there's something about butts that's funny. And so the fact that Hank's always trying to be sneaky and try to, you know, pull these pranks and do these things and half the time he can't manage to make his entire butt, you know, invisible. is just, it was fun. It was fun to write. I 100% agree with you. I really just wanted to get you on record as saying that you love the word butt. Because I love I it do. too. And then there's a point where the kids, you know, Hank, you know, takes up his clothes and gets invisible and goes and sneaks into the cabin to get something and someone goes, uh, do you think he's naked all the time because of invisibility, or do you think he just likes it? They're like, probably both, <laughs> you know? He just has no, he's a very free spirit. So it's things like that don't bother him. I think that even if I had the ability to be invisible, I'm such a prude, I'd still just wear clothes. Total oh, waste of invisibility. Here. It's fun to live vicariously through your characters, though, because they can do all sorts of things that you would never think about doing. Yeah, you can live vicariously and have them do the thing you, you always wanted. Uh, speaking of which, there's another element uh, here to float by Laura Martin, available now wherever fine books are sold. Um, the uh, characters, the boys, they make uh, something called a life list, which is like a bucket list, but instead mm -hmm. of a list of things that you want to cross off before you die, they don't consider themselves to have aged just because time passes. They, they age once they can write something on that list that they've done that they always wanted to do and now it's it's completed. Mm -hmm. I always loved the idea of a bucket list and in my life I've made a lot of bucket lists, but isn't there something like a little depressing about a bucket list? Like, oh, if I check all these things off of my bucket list, I guess I can just sit around and wait to die now, right? So I never liked that idea of the bucket list that it has this kind of end date on it. Um, and so in the book, Hank says, no, I have a life list. You know, it's things I'm gonna do to get the most out of life. Um, and this book kind of talks a lot about kind of seizing the day. Um, that's one of the first things Hank says to um, Emerson is, you know, seize the day and YOLO and all that. Um, and because, you know, we only get one life to live and one life to do all the incredible, wonderful things we're going to do in it. Um, so why are we procrastinating on anything? Um, and I actually, when I do presentations on Float, now I show there's a chart and it's a 90 year life broken up by weeks and all the weeks are in little squares. And I put it up there and I show the kids and I was like, when you look at it, it looks like a lot. But then when you start to realize how much of your life you've already used, um, you realize how quickly life goes by. And especially once you have kids, I feel like I started to notice that because they grow so fast. So if you're going to do crazy, wonderful things, why would you wait to start doing crazy, wonderful things? Um, and in the book, all the boys have, you know, a problem, basically. You know, Emerson floats and um, he's always in danger of floating away. And he realizes, like, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, so why am I... Why am I afraid to kind of live outside my comfort zone? So what things are on Laura's Martin, Laura Martin's list so far, and what things are you still hoping to add? It's funny. I have multiple life lists, but we have one on our fridge right now. I sat down um, 
with my daughter who's four and we made one for the summer of all the things we want to try to do this summer. Um, you know, we're going to go picking strawberries and go to the pool and go get ice cream. So a lot of my lifeless things right now are kid driven because I want my kids to have this awesome, amazing childhood because you only get one, you know, childhood should be magical. Um, so a lot of them are that. I mean, I have lifeless things for being an author. I'd love to be on the YHBA list. That's like on my dream list. I actually have a blog post on my um, website about how that's one of the things on my like author bucket list. Um, because I taught, you know, for so long, those were the books we always like held up and voted on and did all these fun activities with. Um, so I have a lot of like different categories, I guess, of lifeless. You know, I'd love to travel someday, but right now, um, as a mom of three little kids, you know, four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an eight-month-old, um, a lot of my lifeless things have to kind of be kid-centered right now, and I think that's fine. It's the season of life that I'm in, and um, I want them to have a spectacular childhood. Tell you something. Since we're allowed to talk about hoax for hire, uh, one of the more amusing critiques that we that we heard at our critique session, uh, knowing that you're writing at night, was that a lot of your characters are tired in various scenes. Laura, you're raising three kids all day, and then you're writing at night. Like, Why are you so tired? And it was just such an insight for me that of just how directly your real life influences your fiction. It is, and whether you mean it to or not. And when you guys pointed it out, I was like, "You're right. Everyone's always tired." Because I am. When I sit down to write, it's usually the end of the day, and I'm mentally drained and exhausted. And um, like I said, I'm glad I like what I do because, you know, you get done a day of kid chasing, and then it's sitting down to work. Um, but coffee helps. <laughs> I didn't used to be a coffee drinker, and now I definitely am. Um, I've also discovered I'm very productive early in the morning. So if I wake up before everybody and I kind of get my brain awake, I can get a lot more done before the kids wake up when my brain's not as fried. Um, sometimes that backfires though, because if you start moving the little people in your house, like sense it and they'll all wake up early. So there's been like times when I wake up at five in the morning, I'm going to get all this stuff done. And then within 10 minutes, there's a kid crying on the monitor and I'm like, no. <laughs> and I know if I just stayed in bed, everyone would have slept, you know, but they can like sense that mom is moving. <laughs> Mom's on the move. We should all be up now. So sometimes that backfires on me, but, um, yeah. And I had to change that because I was like everyone in, you know, but in hopes for hire, they're doing a lot of like staying up all night to try to figure things out and kind of, so they are tired a lot. They're tired and they're hungry a lot, which I think is probably my common state of being right now is I'm tired and I'm hungry a lot of the time. <laughs> well, in all fairness, there are reasons as, as readers will discover for them to remain tired and hungry. Mm -hmm. There should have been plot reasons, but that, that will always stick with me is that, that criticism. Oh. Like, oh yeah, that's what happens to us poor authors. Something happens and we think it's not working its way into our story and then boom, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Talking about the book that readers can buy right now, float, available wherever fine books are sold. What uh, What's the one thing you're hoping readers are going to take away from this story? Um, I hope they take away that some of the really great adventures in life happen outside your comfort zone. Um, I actually have a stamp that I put in the front of the books when I sign them, and it says, like, here's your comfort zone, and then, like, here's where the really good adventures happen. Um, because a lot of times we think that if it's something that makes us uncomfortable or makes us scared, that maybe we shouldn't do it. Um, but when you start living life outside that comfort zone, it's when the really awesome stuff starts to happen to you. Um, and it takes Emerson literally the whole book to figure that out um, and kind of befriending this kid named Hank who's constantly living life outside the comfort zone and pushing Emerson to kind of grow and be and do. Um, so I think that's the one main thing. And also about um, just accepting like the hand of cards you're dealt and knowing that sometimes you're given a problem or an issue because you have the grit to, to do it, to live that life and to show others that it can be done. Such a wonderful metaphor that Emerson's a character that's just sort of floating along in life. <laughs> it is, and it's funny because the title was almost not float, 
Um, I changed it from super zeros to float and I like loved the title of float and then my agent and then my publisher, we were all trying to come up with a different title. So I have like pages and pages of brainstorm titles. It was going to be the red maple man. It's going to be all these other things because if you type float into Amazon, you get a lot of things. <laughs> so that was one of the main reasons it almost wasn't called float. Um, but when I originally wrote the book, I was going to, um, have a series. It wasn't just going to be a standalone. I wanted to have like the first book called Float and have it from Emerson's point of view, then have one called Stuck from Gary's point of view and Ignite from Anthony's point of view and, you know, Disappear from Hank's point of view. So I love that kind of simplicity of that title. So I hope I get to go back and write those someday, but you never know. Well, that uh, reminds me, I'm hoping to get kind of a little bit of an exclusive. What are the odds that we're going to see an Edge of Extinction 3 and get more dinos here in Indiana? That's the number one question I get asked on author visits. Is there another Edge of Extinction book? Right now, there's not. Um, right now, there's just the two. And I always feel like it's weird to have a two-book series because it's so little, but it's because um, it was my original book, Split in Half, is how that happened. Um, if Edge of Extinction takes off, and my publisher came back tomorrow and said, you know, we would love to see another Edge of Extinction book, I already have it in my head. Um, I would love to write another one, especially since it's such a fun world to write, you know, the world of the dinosaurs here in Indiana. Right now, there's not. Right now, the Edge of Extinction series is done, floats out now, but I would say Hoax for Hire is probably closer to what Edge of Extinction is than Float, um, because it's got Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, a lot of the same kind of creatures that um, are just as interesting as dinosaurs are, where Float's kind of a departure from those creatures. So I, I had my moment of getting a little more normal, and I went back to being a little crazier. <laughs> Thank goodness. I miss the creatures. <laughs> now, now I'm looking at what my next book will be about. I'm like, when you've written about dinosaurs, you've written about kids floating, and my next one has like Bigfoot and Lockheed Smash, I'm like, where do you go from here? <laughs> well, that brings me to my most burning question for you, because as you know, I'm uh, intensely jealous uh, of your creativity. I, I try never to ask authors, where do you get your ideas? Because I know the real answer is you don't completely know. But dang it, Laura Martin, where do you get your ideas? Because you've you, you grabbed dinosaurs in Indiana. Uh, you've got uh, kids at camp um, that have superpowers. And now uh, when Hoax for Hire comes out, you'll have a, a group about, uh, well, as much as we can say, you'll have a, a characters who uh, fake uh, conspiracy theory type hoaxes. Um, and, and when I when I read that on paper, which I was like smacking my head, like Kent, don't you write about UFOs? I and know people, you love that stuff. I'm sure it killed you. And now Laura's got it. So where do you get your ideas, and how can I get to them first next time? Well, um, Edge of Extinction series was 100% by accident. I was on fall break. I was teaching at the time, and um, I went to the Natural History Museum in New York. Um, and there was a little case off to the side with this little tiny dinosaur um, that was about the size of like a gold retriever. And I took a picture of my cell phone and I said, oh, like, what if dinosaurs came back? Would we have them as pets someday? Like, would this kind of dinosaur replace dogs and that kind of thing? Um, and I always, when I go and do author visits, I tell kids they need to capture what I call what ifs. Because every single book starts with a what if. You know, we all go, what if this was true? Yours for Banneker Bones is what if giant robot bees attacked? You know, um, what if alligator people were around? So for me, it was what if dinosaurs came back? And I captured that idea with my cell phone. I didn't write it down. Um, and then months later, my cell phone said, you're out of storage, delete something. So I was like deleting all these random dinosaur pictures. And I saw that one. I went, oh, yeah, like, what if dinosaurs came back? And I had this image of this girl running to get the mail in a world where dinosaurs are back and something simple like getting the mail isn't simple anymore. Um, and that's chapter one. So I just literally like sat my phone down and I started writing chapter one because I had this idea. 
Um, float, like I said, that came from my dad's stories growing up. I've been hearing those my whole life. I'd asked to hear the story about them lighting the light on fire more times than I can count. So I had to imagine that if it intrigued me as a kid, and it's funny, anytime I drop lighting a lake on fire at a school event, all the kids go, what? How do you light a lake on fire? And so you know you got them there. Um, and then Hoax for Hire was actually brewing for a really long time. When I was at Butler, um, I had the idea of like, what if there was a family and they were all like the villains, like all the bad guys? And you know, I couldn't figure out how to make it work. And then when I was teaching, I actually used to teach a book, and I think I have it right here, called Tales of the Cryptids. It was a nonfiction book um, that I used to use as a teacher to kind of show kids how to identify, you know, nonfiction things. And it's all about things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. And there's a whole part in the back about all the different creatures out there that we, you know, think may or may not exist. And this was the number one book that kids loved to, to do. You know, I pulled this book out and every single kid wanted to know about the Loch Ness Monster. Like, there wasn't one kid who was bored by it. And I would pull up all these fun video clips about people hunting for the Loch Ness Monster. So I said, you know, what if um, one entire family was responsible for all these hoaxes? You know, and it's impossible if you really think about it, but in the world of a book, you can make all things possible with the right wording. So um, that's kind of where that idea came from, but it come from all over the place. I try to capture, anytime I have an interesting what if idea, I try to capture it somewhere. I write it down or I put it in my phone. Um, so that later, when I have time to think about it and all the kids are in bed, I can go back and see if that idea has any merit and see if it's something I want to run with. But you always have to make sure you look at them quickly. Um, if you let a what if idea sit too long, sometimes you go back and you look at it and you go, what was I thinking there? Like, what was the, what was the idea? <laughs> um, so you have to kind of keep on top of your what if ideas. Past Laura seemed awful excited about this. I wish she were here to tell me. I know. <laughs> I've like woken up from that, like having weird dreams and like quick, like typed something in my phone, half asleep, and then fall fallen back asleep and woke up and been like, what? What did I think? <laughs> what was my dream about? So, um, so do you write down all your ideas and, and keep a journal or a log someplace of the good ones? I wish I was that organized. I do have, like, on my cell phone, I have the notes app, and I have all my notes on there. Um, but there's pieces of paper flying all over the place. Um, I have, like, one of those old, like, file effects, like, um, you know, that you can, like, stick all your papers in. I have one of these. <laughs> like an accordion folder? Like an accordion folder, yep. Um, this is not it. It's over here on the floor. It's so stuffed, you can't even see it. But I try, anytime I get a cool idea that I write down a scrap of paper, I just shove it in there. This is so unorganized. And then when I want to come up with an idea or I'm trying to search for a new idea, I just pull them all out and I take a look at all these ideas and go, ah, oh, that one looked really, you know, see which one kind of sparks the imagination, which one is worth running with. Stephen King told me, and I, I, I believed him because why wouldn't I? Uh, and he, he didn't tell me, he told the whole world uh, that you should never write an idea down. You should let the ideas compete uh, in your mind, kind of Hunger Games style to figure out which idea you really want to write about. The problem with that is then when I go and I sit down, I say, okay, I need a great idea. I wish I had a folder I could reach for and pull out my great ideas. I always tell kids that what if ideas aren't sticky? You know, they won't stick in your head. And I always tell kids, like, you're the perfect age for what ifs. Middle school, you know, and grade school kids in particular. I remember as a kid sitting there, and you'd have, like, ten awesome ideas in one class period sometimes. But by the end of the day, you can't recall one of them. Um, because our brains aren't hardwired to remember every cool, wonderful, weird, wacky idea that we have. We're hardwired to remember, like, I should probably eat lunch today. Um, so if you don't write them down, those get lost forever. Um, and I always tell kids, the only difference between you and a writer is that writers know that when we get a really good idea, we need to grab it and we need to do something with it. 
Data is just saving it somewhere. Um, and I love that idea of like having ideas compete in your head. And I maybe do that when I spread all my ideas out on the table, but I have so much going on in my head, you know, watching my two-year-old not <laughs> maim himself. I feel like two-year-olds are like tornadoes, and if you don't watch them 24 hours a day, they like, you know, are on top of the table ready to fall off. So I don't have time to like let those ideas compete. I need to focus on other things. Um, so it's when I sit down and I can pull out all those ideas. Because like I said, I'm, I'm tired and hungry a lot of the time. So if I just like let them, you know, hope I'll remember them when I have time, it's not going to happen. Now, see, I think we've identified the flaw in my strategy because I often forget about real life and the things that are supposed to matter I'm supposed to pay attention to. But I'm absolutely 100% concentrated on these uh, imaginary characters and their problems. Uh-huh. It's hard sometimes because you're living two lives. I always tell kids that, you know, being a writer, you get to have imaginary friends who answer you and no one thinks you're crazy. So it's great. <laughs> Good thought. Laura, what the... Uh, you uh, gave some great advice for writers in your uh, seven questions for author Laura Martin interview available now at middlegradeninja.com. Last question for you. What bit of advice would you most want authors to hear? What do you wish had been told to you when you were starting off as an author? Um, I wish someone had told me, like, don't worry about how long it takes. It took me a while to learn that lesson. I was very impatient at the beginning, and every rejection I took to heart. Um, the best piece of advice I got was not to – Everyone says, don't try to publish your first book, but everybody still tries, you know, because you think it's brilliant and wonderful. But sometimes you have to write a book to learn how to write a book, um, which seems hard. You know, you, have, you think if you write a book, you've accomplished half the journey. But a lot of times you learn a lot along the way that you need to learn the hard way to kind of get to the better stuff. Um, and just finding out what not to do. Be very well versed in the publishing world, reading blogs like yours. Um, there's another, there's a literary agent named Janet Reed who has an awesome blog called um, Query Shark, where she edits people's queries and tells you what's working, what's not. Um, she has two blogs actually that I found very helpful, but I was just really immersed in the world so that I knew how to not look dumb. <laughs> Basically when I sent out those queries, how, you know, what to not put in there that would be a red flag to someone. And then when I actually did get my, you know, book deal, it was awesome because I already had all this knowledge of like, okay, what's the next step? Because I've been reading so much on it. Um, I would just say not to give up. If you're a writer and you love writing, um, just stick with it because it's something that's enjoyable. And if you get to eventually make your passion a paycheck, all the better, you know. But like I said, if it had taken me 10, 20, 30 years, I still would be coming in my office and writing at night when the kids are in bed. Like it wouldn't change what I was doing. Um, the difference is now I have someone on the outside giving me deadlines as opposed to like just kind of putzing around and writing and starting a lot of different stories. Um, and I think that's probably my best piece of advice is not to give up. And group. You know, find a group of writers who are willing to be honest and not necessarily just nice. My first person who ever, you know, looked at my book was my mom who was like, oh, honey, it's wonderful. You're perfect. You know, <laughs> moms are great, but they're not the best writing critique partners because they, think everything you write is wonderful. They've been reading your garbage writing since you were, you know, in first grade. Um, find a group of writers who are like-minded, who are writing the same stuff as you. Um, I had a different writer, not the YA Cannibals, um, who helped me with Float back when it was Super Zero. It was my very first writing group, and they were huge. They were hugely you know, instrumental in helping me figure out what was working and what wasn't. So go out there and find other writers and, and get yourself a writer's group and a feedback loop and make sure that you're getting honest yep. criticism of your work. Exactly. And that's, uh, I always have students after an author visit who say, can I send you my book? You know, can I send you my writing? And I love that because that they're writing and they want to be a writer. And I always say, find a group of kids who are also writing. You know, the best thing you can do is get with other people who are like-minded and chasing the same dreams as you. 
and have them look at it and be kind, but not be, but be honest about what's working, what's boring, and what's confusing. And because um, a lot of times when you're writing your own stuff, it's hard to see, where it's easier to see when it's somebody else's stuff. Well, that's a great line. I'm going to use that from now on. Usually, when people come up and they say, "Well, you read something," I wrote said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that. Find yourself a writer's group. Yep. Laura, where uh, can a steam viewer find you online? Where can we find out more about you? Um, I have an author's website at lauramartinbooks.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram, same name, Laura Martin Books. I'm on Twitter as Laura Martin Book because they cut me off. <laughs> and it wasn't books. I didn't realize it. I'm not very good with Twitter. I'm not on there very often. Um, but those are the two main places to find me. Um, you can find me at HarperCollins' website. Um, they have a little information on me. I have you know, an author's page on Amazon as well. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place, but um, I do school visits. I'm around a lot in Indiana. I feel like the people in my hometown are very sick of hearing about the Indiana writer who's putting dinosaurs in Indiana because I've been in like all of their publications. So, um, but yeah, that's where I am. Well, Hoosiers just light up at that because nothing cool ever happens here. We got corn and now you tell us dinosaurs are coming. No, I said dinosaurs <laughs> in Indiana, right? I always tell the kids, write what you know, and I know Indiana. I just had to imagine what Indiana looked like 150 years after dinosaurs have come back. And we should uh, promote our mutual friend, Jody Lemock, because you've got an episode of the Dream Gardens podcast coming up. Are you allowed to spoil and tell us what book you picked to discuss? Sure. Um, I just asked this one right here. <laughs> um, it's by Tamora Pierce. It's called Al Alana, The First Adventure. Um, anything Tamora Pierce has written, I have read and loved. And it's funny, growing up, um, the main character in here is a 12-year-old redheaded girl that I wanted to be. She has all this grit and determination. She wants to be a knight. Um, so she disguises herself as a boy to train to be the first knight in the kingdom. Um, and it's funny, I grew up and I wrote my main character as a 12-year-old redheaded girl with a lot of grit and determination. And I didn't even put those two things together until way later. And I went, oh, my word. It's because that's who I wanted to be. When I read this first you know, book as a middle school kid, I wanted to be her. I wanted to be that adventurous and have that grit and determination. So it's funny how, like you said, the things around you in your life all end up in your writing, whether you mean it to or not. But this is the book I discussed with him. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's the first in a series of four. Um, and I've read it so many times, I practically have it memorized. And it's really good on audio as well. Do you have uh, an air date or an idea when that podcast will be available? I believe it's coming out in mid-July. Okay, excellent. Dream Gardens podcast with Laura Martin. Laura, this is fun. I could talk to you all night, and I know that I will another time. Uh, thank you so much for doing this and for being here. Um, and I will talk with you again soon, esteemed viewer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, find out more both about me and Laura at middlegradeninja.com, and we'll see you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me.